0: I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter. Pardon me, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to focus on verse 24 through 28. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The wind fell, or the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. Let's pray. Father God, we come thanking you again, as we always do, for this day to come and worship you. But Father, every day of our life is a day to worship you. We thank you for your loving kindness and your grace, for your mercy and your love. And we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is for him and in him that we come this morning to worship you. And, Father, we come to praise his name. We come to open up your word that you might speak to our hearts through it. Open up our spiritual eyes that we might see your truths. Open up our hearts, Father, that we might comprehend. Our ears that we might truly hear with all of our heart and mind and soul. Father God, we ask that you would give us clear understanding of your moral law that you have created since the very foundation of the world when it was laid. Father, your word is truth, and your revealed law is truth, and you have blessed us by it because it reflects your character, your attributes, your very being, and for that we give thanks and praise you. You are the God worthy of all praise, the only true God. So, Father, we come in the name of Jesus. We ask that you would open our eyes and hearts accordingly. In his name we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to talk about this third sermon in the series of of six that uh, reflects how our biblical worldview impacts our view of morality and God's natural law. We talked last week about Uh, psychology, pardon me, last week we talked actually about, uh, uh, the first week I should say was the the theology and philosophy, and this week we're talking about ethics and law, next week we're going to talk about biology and psychology, we'll wrap this up, the very last sermon on this series is going to have to do with the discipline of, of, of government or politics as well as history. But this morning we're going to focus on ethics and determine what that really means, and what is God's moral law, and why it's important to our biblical worldview, and how our biblical worldview affects our interpretation of God's moral law. Let's just reflect for a second again, as we do every time, defining and understanding what we mean by a biblical worldview, and that is the Any ideology or philosophy, theology, movement, or religion that provides an overarching uh, approach to understanding God, the world, and man's relation to God and the world. And we're going to break this down into those ten disciplines we talked about. But it's it's always important for us to understand where we're going and how the vehicle that we're going to use to get there, if you will. And this thing about worldview is important for, as we begin this series and as we conclude it, hopefully we'll patch together or weave together uh, a a fabric of understanding that will help us understand better than ever where we're coming from, why we believe what we believe. It's important to understand that because every single one of us, whether you realize it or not, has a worldview. We have an overarching approach to how we understand the world, God, and man's relationship to, to God and the world. Whether you want to or not, you do. And it's important that we understand where we're coming from. As we mentioned just a while ago, ethics is the study of what is right and wrong behavior. It asks the question, what is right? What is wrong? Law is the study of the basic principles of nature and human conduct that are expected to be observed. It asks that question, what, who makes the rules? Where do they come from? What, what, where are we basing this? So as we define worldview, we also define ethics. Again, I like to always begin with a clear understanding, a definition of what we're talking about, so that we're always on the same page. Ethics is the discipline dealing with what is good and bad and with moral duty and obligation. The principles of conduct governing an individual are a group. That's a new, that's a Webster's New Collegiate Dictionary summary of the term of ethics. But the fact is, it's that morals are an integral part of ethics, almost the same thing in every way. You can't really separate one from the other. Morals is defined of or relating to the principles of right or wrong behavior expressing or, uh, or expressing or teaching a conception of right behavior and conforming to a standard of right behavior. So our moral approach to life is important because it begins to govern the way we behave and act and interrelate to our fellow human beings, but most importantly, the way we relate to God. Let's talk about some key ideas as it relates to ethics. There must be an absolute... If there is to be moral order and real value, there has to be an absolute with respect to ethics if there is to be real value and moral order. C.S. Lewis said this in this quote that I've got for you this morning. The human mind has no more power of inventing a new value than of imagining a new primary color or indeed of creating a new sun and a new sky for it to move in. And that's a very true statement. We don't have the capacity, intellectually, in any way, spiritually, to invent new values. The values we have come from God. We'll talk in greater detail. This next slide is a quote from a secular humanist by the name of Richard Taylor, who lived from 1919 to 2003. He's an American philosopher, author that reg- the author of some books regarding uh, metaphysics. He was renowned for his dry wit and good humor. He made this comment. The modern age, more or less repudiating the idea of a divine lawgiver, has nevertheless tried to retain the ideas of moral right and wrong without noticing that in casting God aside, they also have abolished the meaningfulness of right and wrong as well. I thought it was profound. That a secular humanist said this. When we used to study his background, he was a signature of the uh, matter of fact of the Human Manifesto 2000, or the third one that was done. Remember, the first one was done in 33, the second in 1973, and the last and the most recent version is 2000. Find it strange we have to keep redefining the manifesto, but that's part of the moving target of secular humanism. The fact is is that here's a man who had a quicker background. He was a member of the Society of Friends. He was renowned among his, his fellow secular humanists as a rather idiocentric type of individual. That's why he was called a philosopher, I guess. But the fact of the matter is, here is a guy who made a profound statement. He says, you can't remove God and expect to have any kind of real definition of right and wrong. It's an impossibility. The dilemma of secular humanism is this. And this is the religion of our day. They have no basis on which to build anything. It's always a moving target. There's no absolutes and since there's no absolutes because there's no god, what do they founded on? It changes. As I mentioned last week in a sermon, in 1933 the whole concept of secular humanism as signed in that 33 manifesto was just blown apart by World War II and the Holocaust. Because they realized it had much too optimistic a view of what man could do if he would just educate it because the 20th century was the bloodiest century in all the history of mankind probably more people died as a result of nazism and communism and every kind of other ism if you will except what is basically truth in christ jesus than in all the other centuries combined it's an amazing thing to consider so the fact is is that secular humanism offers no foundation whatsoever on which to build anything much less a moral code. Let's talk about relation and our, our common moral uh, revelation and our common moral heritage. Again I have a quote by David Noble who wrote the book Understanding the Times and how to develop a biblical worldview and I've used that as a great amount of the structure in which we are building. But his comment was, Christian morality is founded on the belief that an absolute moral order exists outside of, and yet somehow inscribed into, man's very being. It is a morality flowing from the nature of the creator through the nature of created things, not a construction of the human mind. It is part of God's general revelation to man. Remember last week we talked, and we'll talk further about this, God's general revelation. And that is, he made us in his own image. He made us in his own image. So therefore, we have part of God in us. We have no excuse. God created us in such a way that we might know him. And he gave us that general revelation just by the way he created it. We have a conscience And unless we have disobeyed God to a point and rejected him to which our conscience is seared, which has become dead and incapable of hearing the voice of God or understanding his moral law, then we can always know him because of the way he's created us. Let's talk about the Christian response to secular ethics because this is important. Again, I'm quoting a couple of guys, David Noble. He says, the so-called new morality is nothing more than an excuse to use morality to do as one pleases. That's why if you have no absolute moral code, you can describe your morals as anything you want it to be. As a matter of fact, a lot of the atheists, especially the ones rather renowned, like Bertrand Russell, I believe, is one of them, who had made the comment, he finally admitted one time, that the reason he rejected Christianity is he couldn't stand the moral code, if you will. He wanted to be able to do as he pleased morally. So therefore, Christianity was too constraining. So therefore, he just rejected the whole thing and got to the point of saying there's no God at all. Francis Schaeffer said, If there's no absolute beyond man's ideas, then there is no final appeal to judge between individuals and groups whose moral judgments conflict. We are left merely with conflicting opinions. If there is no foundation, if there is no absolutes, then we'll never be able to resolve any differences. We'll never come to any conclusion of what is right and wrong. James Kennedy. Uh, wrote wrote this. I thought this was a profound statement. He says, When a person makes up his own ethical code, he always makes up an ethical system he thinks he has kept. In the law of God, we find a law that smashes our self-righteousness, eliminates all trust in our own goodness, and convinces us that we are sinners. The law of God leaves us with our our hands over our mouths and our faces in the dust, We are humbled before God and convinced that we are guilty transgressors of the law. And as God deals with us, we come to that point of understanding that we indeed are sinners. That there is no righteousness goodness in us. And that we are dependent upon the Almighty for grace and mercy. And that is why we turn to the absolute truth of the word through Jesus Christ. Let's do some summarizing thoughts on ethics before we turn to law. It says here, again, David Noble, I quote, God's moral nature is absolute and unchanging. God always hates evil and loves good. The Bible is of supreme importance because it tells us the difference between the two, providing a framework on which completely unambiguous ethic must be built. According to biblical Christianity, ethical relativism leads to destruction. Jesus said in Matthew 7.13, he said, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. So we have a narrow way, if you will because it is the way of truth and light. And broad is the way that invites all to do their thing, if you will. Another thought about this, again from Noble. Christian ethics is inseparable from theology for the simple reason that it is grounded in the character of God. Now think of that statement. Last week we talked about our worldview about theology is theistic. We believe in a supernatural God. That is the worldview that we cling to. Therefore, we can't separate our ethics or moral law from our theology, believing that we have a supernatural God who has revealed himself through general revelation, the way we are created, the way he made the world, and through the special revelation we have through his living word, the Bible, and Jesus Christ, his Son, our Savior and Lord. So therefore, we have to understand that. He goes on to say, rather than believing in some ethical scheme bound to society's ever-changing whims, the Christian answers to a specific moral order revealed to man through general revelation and the special revelation of the Bible and the person of Jesus Christ. So this is what we have. God has not kept us in the dark. God has not kept us guessing. He has given us very specific things. Let's go on to say, the secular humanist views on on ethics, because this one, I think, is the exact uh, description of, of, the, of the problems with secular humanism. And this was a quote by a fellow by the name of, of Arthur uh, Gravatt, and he says, the morality or immorality of any behavior, including sexual behavior, has been put in the context of situation ethics. In this approach, moral behavior must our moral behavior may differ from situation to situation. Behavior might be moral for one person and not another, or moral at one time and not another. That's a, that's a fluid foundation. That is, by the way, you can make anything fit under the circumstances with that. Let's talk about law. We said that ethics really related to our individual conduct in many ways. It's morality, It relates to community as well, but law really relates to community. Defining law, we come up with this description. Uh, it's a binding custom or practice of a community. It's a rule of conduct or action prescribed or formally recognized as binding or enforced by a controlling authority. Law is enforceable, as you'll see in that second definition from the Encartia Encyclopedia and Dictionary. It's enforceable. It's a set of rules that have been agreed upon, especially by a community, and is things that govern the conduct of mankind. So I think as it, brings, it brings also to mind another scripture that relates to this conduct. It says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? That's Micah 6, eight. It's a great description of the way that we ought to live as the prophet gave the nation of Israel. Let's talk about the key idea of law, and that is that general and special revelation together provide enough information for people to implement a legal system that need not depend on the wisdom of sinful human beings. Can you imagine for a moment what it would really be Like if man created his own law, that's what man is attempting to do right now in this day and age. Forgetting the absolute moral law of God and attempting to create something out of the reasoning of man. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But the fact is is that God has, through his general revelation, through the way he has made us, and that we have a conscience... And that he's made it and we can look at his creation and we know that we're dealing with a a God because it says in Romans 19.20, it says this. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made, so that they are without excuse. That's Romans chapter 1, 19 and 20. What a description of why we ought to know God's moral law. The special revelation is what he has revealed to us through the scriptures. The living word that's sharper and alive and sharper than a two-edged sword. That which is indeed divinely inspired and is profitable for teaching, reproof and correction and training in righteousness. It's profitable It's usable. It's beneficial when we base the laws of God on what is divinely inspired by God. Let's talk about three different types of natural law for a moment. Or three different perspectives, because we're going to look, first of all, at the divine natural law. Then we're going to look at the secular secular natural law, and then lastly at historical national law, because there are three different things. And we're going to also talk about the difference between positive law and civic law, because that has to do with natural law as well. But divine natural law is the important thing that we'll focus on. There is, by the way, a, a body of law that is imposed by the state. For example, the privilege of voting is not a natural right but it's a privilege conferred by positive or civic law. The speed limits we observe every time we get behind the wheel and drive a car are established by civic or positive law. But there's a natural law element to that. The natural law being that we ought to not harm one another. We ought to be considerate of one another. And so therefore, that's why evolving in civic or positive law is the fact that we have speed limits, we have other regulations, other laws that govern the way that we move about and the way that we interrelate with our fellow man. The focus of this is to get a better understanding of what that divine natural law is. Looking at that next slide, it is important that we understand that natural law, the divine natural law, is the belief that law must, be conform, that law must conform to the commandments that were laid down and inspired by God, who governs according to principles of compassion, truth, and justice. We can know God's natural law through our conscience and our inherent sense of right and wrong. That's why we know, we knew from the beginning, it was not right for man to kill another man, to murder someone. That became apparent in the very first murder that occurred in the history of mankind when Cain killed Abel. Because of his jealousy. The fact is, we have that innate knowledge in us to know God's moral law, his natural law. The second type, by the way, and the first type is God gives very specific natural law as it relates to science. We have the law of gravity. Sir Isaac Newton was the one who took the time to observe and to experiment, and therefore to define and describe the natural law of, of, of gravity. We have many natural laws, scientific in that nature, that exist. They're unchanging as long as Christ holds them together. In him, all things are held together, it says in Colossians chapter 1. But the fact remains is that we have a moral, natural law that God has created within us. And the next slide is indicative of that, and it's on the back of your study guide. It is the Ten Commandments. This is God's special revelation through the Mosaic law that he gave to the prophet Moses. And he says, then God spoke these words, saying, and he gave them to Moses, inscribed upon the stone tablets. The fact is, when you began to look at these, these aren't optional. They're not situational. They're unchanging. They're eternal. We don't have to go through the description of these. We'll ask you as, as part of the discussion questions what you would do and how you would describe some of this. But the fact is is that God gave us very specific, natural, divine, natural law. And this is a perfect example of it. Also, let's look at some foundational truths. I think this is one. And by, I'm going to describe to you this guy by the name of Sir William Blackstone. He was the author of... Of the commentaries on the laws of England in the uh, in the 18th century, a well-renowned author. And matter of fact, I'd like to read this to you because this describes his his scope of influence. It was his commentaries on the laws of England that profi- that were profoundly influ- influential to many Americans, such as John Marshall, John Adams, John Jay, and even Abraham Lincoln. Within United States academia and practice, as well as within the judiciary, the commentaries on the law of England had a substantial impact. With the scarcity of law books on the frontier, they were both the only law school and the only law library most American lawyers used to practice law in America for nearly a century after they were published. And they were published in the late 18th century. Blackstone had drawn up a plan for a dedicated school of law and submitted it to the University of Oxford. The idea was rejected, and he included included those ideas in his commentary. And it is from this plan that the modern system of American law schools emerged. Here's what Blackstone said. He says, Upon these two foundations, the law of nature, we're talking about God's divine natural law, and the law of revelation, that's the Bible, Depend all human laws. All human laws ought to be built on the foundation of God's divine natural laws. There's no other foundation. He went on to say in this next slide, Man, considered as a creature, must necessarily be subject to the laws of his creator, for he is an entirely dependent being. And consequently, as man uh, depends absolutely upon his maker for everything, it is necessary that he should in all points conform to his maker's will. This will, uh, This will of his maker is called the law of nature. If you just look at Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through 32, it'll give you a description of all the things that man can do when he refuses to heed God's divine natural law. It talks about homosexuality. It talks about adultery, of liars and slanderers and haters of God. It goes on to describe the conditions quite clearly that are existent in the world today because man has refused to obey the laws of God what God has revealed in his general revelation as well as his special revelation through Jesus Christ and the word of scripture. Let's look at also what it means when we use the term of secular natural law. Secular natural law replaces the divine laws of God with the physical, biological, and behavioral laws of nature as understood by human reason. This perspective elevates... The capacity of the human intellect over the spiritual authority of religion. That's secular natural law. It elevates the capacity of human intellect over the spiritual authority of religion. And we're talking specifically Christianity. We're talking specifically as revealed in the living word of God. That's what secular humanism does. And that's really where it comes from. Because it says, I don't need God. I don't need God's revelation. I can do this out of my own reason and through my own intellect. And when you think about what that means and what that rejects and the truth that it subverts, it's rather frightening. The next slide deals with historical natural law. It's been around a long time. And it is another way of approaching things in this way. The view holds to the law that law must be made to conform with well-established but unwritten, sometimes unwritten, customs, traditions, and experiences that have evolved over the course of history. Perfect example had to do with a king of England, James I, and who was James the Fourth of Scotland, who was a was an intellectual king. By the way, he wrote extensively. He was admired for his intellect and for his and his ability to uh, express himself and to understand and comprehend uh, the happenings of his day. He also believed in the divine right of kings, and as a consequence, he came in conflict with his fellow man, especially in the Parliament of england and uh, and it as it turned out, they probably got got to the point uh, that a jurist by the name of uh, Sir Edward Coke argued that the sovereignty of the crown was limited by the ancient liberties of the English people and by their immemorial customs and the rights that were preserved in the Magna Carta, which was published about 400 years before, or 300 years, 400 years before this. And the Magna Carta in, in really kind of encompassed those rights like our Declaration of Independence. It's going kind to of define who we are as a nation. So the Magna Carta was, the, under John, uh, King John, the one that came to define who England was as a nation. And so they were able to, uh, to truncate, essentially, the reach and the assertion of James I. Though this was the same king, by the way, who authorized the King James Version of the Bible. The Authorized Version, as it's called in England. Giving a great great gift to man. No question about it. We're available for the first time to every person who could do it, who could afford it, was the living word of God so that man could begin to understand it themselves. That has to do with the historical perspective on natural law. There are five principles I'd like for us to look at in closing this morning. Five basic truths or precepts that relate to divine natural law. And they start with the first one here. The source of all divine natural law is the is the nature and character of God. He is the source, the sole source. In Romans 19:20 again, for since the creation of his world his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made, so that they are without excuse. We are without excuse because of the way we've been made. So that the source of all natural, divine natural law is the character of God. Secondly, the moral order proceeds from and reflects the character of God. His holiness, justice, truth, love, and mercy. That's God. And his divine natural law reflects those very things... Holiness, justice, truth, love, mercy. These are God's natural law. God's moral order is as real as his physical order. His moral order is as real as the law of physics or the law of thermodynamics or the law of gravity. It's there. It's real. And it's true because it comes forth from God. Thirdly, we are created in God's image. And thus are significant. Our life is not an afterthought or an accident. Think about this. It says, and this is important for us to understand God made us in such a way that we knew that we are not to shed blood and kill another man, we're not to murder. Whoever sheds man's blood, it says in Genesis 9-6, By man his blood will be shed, for the image of God has made he made man. In the image of God he made man. Our life is not an afterthought or an accident. God planned us before the foundation of the world was laid, it tells us in Ephesians chapter 1. He's known us from that very time. And therefore, we are significant because we are his creation. And since we are his creation, we have been created in a way that we might know him. So praise God for that. When you think of the significance, he's established, by the way, the human government to protect human lives, rights, and dignity. And I would challenge you to go back to Romans chapter 13 and read this because it says there's no authority except that from God and those who exist those and those which exist are established by God he says in colossians chapter 1 all things are created by him whether things on the heavens or things on the earth visible or invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers or authorities all things have been created by him and for him no government exists without God's sovereign will. And sometimes that's impossible for us to understand. But that is the truth from the scriptures. God established that government and the laws to govern us. And just read Romans chapter 13. Fourthly, when Jesus Christ took on human form, human life assumed even greater significance. In John chapter 1, 14, it says... And the word became flesh, and the flesh dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. His flesh dwelt among us. God the Creator became God the Redeemer. And because of that, even greater significance. You know, the Gnostic heresy or the apostasy of the of the second and third century. What was really about this thing that all flesh is evil. So therefore, God could have never come in Jesus Christ in the flesh. It's impossible. Had to be an apparition. Had to be some kind of image that was just impossible. So he he could not come in the flesh because flesh is wicked and evil. Yet, flesh is significant. That's why Jesus Christ came a man and dwelt among us. And therefore, we have a Savior in him. This next slide deals with another quote that I think you'll find significant in light of what we just got through saying. And Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. made this quote. He said, I see no reason for attributing to man a significant difference in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. He was an associate justice of the Supreme Court. Was he a secular humanist? I have a suspicion he probably was. Probably was an atheist since he saw no significance in the creation of man. No difference between that and the baboon or grain of sand. What a pathetic, pathetic thing that this man, who was highly educated, highly educated, could come to a conclusion like this. He was well renowned for uh, many of his quotes, and this kind of it reflects the problem with the inconsistency of the secular humanist point of view, the worldview. That uh, it, it, it starts with really nothing and really ends up with nothing when you really get down to it. It, had, it's, it's a comp- it is a pathetic excuse for a worldview to those of us who live by faith. If, I guess if you're an atheist, it's, it must be uh, magnificent in some respects because it, it opens up to all sorts of possibilities. Lastly, God through Jesus Christ will judge the whole human race according to his standard of good and evil. In 2 Corinthians 5.10 it says for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done whether good or bad. We're going to be judged by God. Every one of us will stand before God at some time. And we have in Jesus Christ, an advocate with the Father, Jesus the Son. And he's going to say, Father, they are righteous because they have my righteousness. They are blameless and clean and holy because I have given them this. What a wonderful Redeemer we have in him. And therefore we can know that we have an advocate with the Father. Lastly, I'd like to just say, the scripture I wrote, or the scripture I read this morning as we began this sermon is the perfect description, and this came to me last night as I was looking over my notes, and finally I thought, you know, this is the one that describes the condition that we find ourselves in when we attempt to build on a philosophy or a theology or an ethical system our moral system, or moral code, are a natural law without God. Jesus told this parable in Matthew chapter 7. It's the only parable, the only time it's told in the, in the, uh, the Synoptic Gospels is in Matthew chapter 7. The fact is, he said, the man built his house on the rock, and it withstood the wind and the storm. The house still stood because it was built on the rock. But the man who built in the sand, His house did not stand, and great was its destruction. The fact is, is that we have a choice as Christians, as believers. And bear this in mind what we said the very first sermon we preached in this series. Only 5% of Christians, born-again Christians, who hold the Bible to be something that is reliable and with basic principles of truth, believe or have a biblical worldview. 5%. So what do the other 95% have? They have a worldview that has been built on man's philosophies, a little bit from this, a little bit from that, a little bit of postmodernism, a little bit of uh, cosmic humanism, a little bit of secular humanism, a little bit of Marxist-Leninist philosophy. They're building on that, the wisdom of man. And what does the Bible tell us about the wisdom of man? It's foolishness to God. If it's foolishness to God, why would we want to build on a foundation of belief or base our worldview on such fallacy and hopelessness and relativism? Why would we want to ever do that? Why not build on the solid rock? As the old hymn says, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. I can remember a wonderful hymn from years ago, My Anchor Holds on Christ the Solid Rock. My Anchor Holds. And that is what we need to think of today. We need to understand what our worldview is based on. Is it God's moral law? Is it God's divine, moral, natural law? Or is it built upon the philosophy of man? Does it govern the way you think and move and have your being in Christ Jesus? If it is, it ought to be a biblical worldview. And you ought to consider the implications of what you profess. Because, like I said earlier, as as every one of us sit here today, we have a worldview. All you need to do is sit down and begin thinking about it. It'll emerge. Do you believe that God's word is profitable for teaching, reproof, and correction? Divinely inspired? Do you believe that, that it's living and active? Do you believe that it is worthwhile basing your whole belief system upon? Or are you borrowing from things in the world, as convenient as they might be? You see, that's the problem with secular humanism. It has no no foundation. It has no solid rock. And it has to borrow from all sorts of philosophies and, and approaches to life because of that fact. So I challenge you this morning to think about how you think about these things. How do you approach, what's your overarching approach to God, to man, and to man's relationship to God and the world? What is your overarching approach? Think on these things. They are worthy of your thoughts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice that we can anchor... Our whole worldview in Jesus Christ. That he is the solid rock. He is the one sure foundation. He is never changing, Father. For he is like you, the same today, tomorrow, and all that you ever have been or ever will be. Father, we thank you for the assurance that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. We thank you for your divine truth as revealed to us in your word. We thank you that we can know you in this way, intimately, Father, with all of our hearts, minds, and soul, and strength to love you accordingly. We thank you for the divine natural law that you have given that governs us day by day. We thank you, Father, that you have revealed these things to us in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Father, speak to our hearts. Draw us near to your bosom. May we learn to love you with all of our heart, mind, and soul, and with all of our strength. May we learn to love our neighbors as ourselves. May we be obedient, faithful servants of the Lord Jesus Christ for his glory and honor, and we ask it in his name. Amen.